You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Okay, enough preaching, it's time to preach. And, uh, and we got to get into this tonight. I know we got a lot going tonight. And so I'm going to try to move here pretty quickly. James chapter 1, uh, it's been a couple months since we were in the book of James. We've had guest speakers, we've had holidays, we've had the Ruckman's send-off, we had vision night, I've been, I was gone last week. So it's been hit and miss, but we're back tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 12. This is where we stopped last time, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. It, it says in James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And we'll stop reading there, but tonight's message is simply called, and it's really just a basic walk through these verses to help us see the truth about temptation. We need to know the truth about temptation. You know, sometimes we need just basic, simple reminders about the dangers of sin. And I'm going to say that again because it's true. We need basic, simple reminders about the dangers of sin. And in some ways, tonight's message is a two-part message. um, And I'll introduce a couple of thoughts and truths out of this, but we won't really get to the solution until next time. But there's a lot to unpack And so we need to understand the truth about temptation because it's something we all deal with. How many of you were tempted this week by something? Okay. How many of you were tempted today by something? How many of you are tempted in the last five minutes? Well, we probably could say. We've all been tempted. You've been tempted to, to, to say, stop preaching and preach. Yeah, maybe. No, but we're tempted all the time. And we need to know the truth about temptation If we're going to have victory over it, let's pray and ask God to help us. God, we pray that you bless the reading of your word, and we pray that you would bless our time together tonight. Be honored and glorified. Help us to be responsive, Lord. Help wake us up and help us to be alert this evening and ready to hear the truth in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. James is writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad. We've already looked at the first 11 verses, and they're facing difficult trials, and And he tells them something unexpected when he says, here's your approach to your trials. Count it all joy. Have joy. You wouldn't expect that when when someone's telling you it's about to get hard. When you face trials and tests, have joy. But it's because God intends to take those tests and he intends to grow us through the test... And have that process of growth through the trials be, be a process of maturity in our lives. He wants to grow you into something that he wants you to become. Like Jesus Christ. 
Maturity comes as we face the trials and we face the tests. And rather than have us miss the trials, which he could do that. He could have us go around the trials. But, but, he, but he knows that if we miss the trials, then we miss the learning that comes by going through the trials. Our maturity is dependent on how we respond to the temptations. And, and one of the messages we preach in this is don't view the tests like a victim. View the tests like a student. Be a student about the test. Uh, be a student about the learning. And don't be a victim all the time. It's easy to have a victim mentality. And then, you know, everything is woe is me and look how hard it is for me. Well, don't be a victim. Be a student. Learn what God wants you to learn and mature and grow and be perfect, he says. Be complete after the trial. And so as we come to our text, though, tonight there's a shift in the focus. And he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. So he's giving them um, some thoughts about something they obviously were, had been wrong about. Something that they had misunderstood. Something that they didn't understand regarding temptation. And his purpose is to shed some light on the truth about temptation. But it's not the temptation he's been talking about. You see, there are two kinds of temptations in the book of James here in this first chapter. The first is outward temptation. It's the things that happen to us. The external. Things like a flat tire on your way to work. That's an outward external temptation. These are things like somebody gets your order wrong and you have to drive back with a great spirit. These are things like you get rear-ended when the roads get icy. Right, Brother Juan? Okay, so ask him about that later. I mean, just the when you least expect it. The roads are icy, somebody doesn't stop in time and, and they decide to get a little too close for comfort. Um, these are things like, you know, people in our lives that annoy us or circumstances in our lives that we can't control, external temptations. See, the problem is they start on the outside, but they can creep their way on the, to the inside. You know, see, meaning if you deal with enough outward pressure and stress, it can transition into inward sin. You know, in, in a very similar way, if you've got enough stress, if you live long enough with enough stress in your life, that's going to start affecting your physical health. If you're stressed all the time, you know, your blood pressure starts to go up. It affects your heart. It weakens your heart. It starts to affect you. And in the same way in life, the more things go wrong, the angrier we get. The more external problems we have, the more internal opportunities to sin that we have. The harder our finances get, the worse our attitudes. The tougher our day, the more discontent we become. The outward pressures of life can transition into inward temptations. You know, Paul, uh, James is saying, you know, receive these trials, receive the temptations, receive the difficulties and have joy. But I guarantee you there were some that were reading this and they weren't too happy about their trials. They weren't very happy about their temptations. They weren't, be, you know, they didn't have a big smile on their face when they were persecuted. I mean, it's, it's very possible for the outward pressures to turn into inward sin. And so James starts by talking about temptation. He says, let no man say when he's tempted, uh, in verse 13, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Every man is tempted. He's talking about now inward temptations. And if the outward tests 
measure our resolve to endure, then the inward test, measure our resolve to resist sin. That's what he's talking about. So what, what temptations do people face? Well, I was reading a, a Barna poll, which um, you know, is, a, is a famous, well-known poll um, for just for many different areas. But a few years ago, it, it asked the American, average American what their primary temptations were. And 60% of Americans say their primary temptation is to be worried. And I thought that was pretty interesting considering what we're doing on Wednesday nights with, with anxiety and, and worry and fear. You know, that's something we need to be, uh, we need to be on the lookout for. Uh, 60% of Americans also say they're stuck in the habit of procrastination. You know, and the rest of them, you know, didn't turn in the, their poll on time. So 50 per, 55%, that was a bad dad joke, 55% of Americans are tempted to eat too much. ...as we're about to have a chili cook-off and dessert auction, okay? 44% of Americans are most tempted with overuse of electronics and social media. 41% say their temptation is laziness. 35% say they're tempted to spend more money than they can afford. And your primary temptation... So Dave Ramsey, by the way, there's a plug for Dave Ramsey... But your primary temptation may or may not be included on that list. But one thing I'm sure of, and one thing James was sure of, is that we all have an area that is most likely to test us. You have an area, and I'm going to talk about this probably more next time, but you have an area of temptation that is unique to you. And I have an area of temptation that's unique to me. You have yours, I have mine, but we all have them. We all have our enticements. We all have our own vices. Oscar Wilde was a wicked man. He said, I can resist almost anything except temptation. And his life was one of debauchery and wickedness, and it certainly reflected that. Mark Antony, that famous Roman leader, was known as the silver-throated orator of Rome. He was a brilliant statesman and a master in battle. He was courageous, he was strong, and he was handsome. And as far as personal qualities are concerned, he could have become a world leader, but he had a very vulnerable and fatal flaw of moral weakness. So much so that one of his personal tutors on an occasion shouted into his face, Oh, Marcus... O colossal child, able to conquer the world, but unable to resist a temptation. Someone said our opportunity knocks once, but temptation leans on the doorbell. It will not go away, and that's what it feels like sometimes. And, and somebody in here tonight, you probably have a temptation, and it's leaning on the doorbell, and it won't go away, and it just plagues you and it's over and over and over again well there's some truth about temptation that we need to look at tonight and the first is the problem with temptation uh, verse 13 again he says uh, let no man say when he is tempted i am tempted of god james kicks off this thought flow by saying stop blaming god or anything else for your sin god's not the problem uh, he says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God's not the problem. When it comes to sin, he's not your problem, because God cannot sin. He cannot even be tempted with sin. In Hebrews 4, Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet we without sin. And God is many things. And God is full of grace and God is full of mercy and he is love. But of all things, God is holy. 
and that is his primary characteristic, that trait sets him apart from the rest. He cannot sin. Him and sin have no common ground. In Matthew 4, when Satan took Jesus to tempt him, Jesus says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. There's no attempt to sin or no appeal to sin on God's part. None at all. So someone said Jesus wasn't just able not to sin. He was not able to sin. Meaning, it's not as if Jesus could have sinned and he was able to resist it. No, he's, he wasn't even able to sin. He's not able to sin. Um, there are those of us who sometimes we're able not to sin... ...but it doesn't mean we're not able to sin. We can. No, uh, so James uses this as a reason for saying... ...God's not tempting you to sin. God and sin have nothing in common. God will never trick you to fall into evil. God's trying to mature you. God is trying to grow you. God's trying to make you like Jesus. He's not throwing sins in your path... He, he, he may allow things to come, but, but to grow us and mature us, don't blame God for your sin. But you know what? You also can't blame Satan for your sin. See, the devil may, never made anybody do it. And he might bait the hook, but he can't make you choose. And we're very good at passing the buck. It's in our nature to pass the buck. You say, well, I don't know about that. I take responsibility, except look at the very first humans who committed the very first sin. And what did they do? Yeah, I heard somebody say Adam blamed Eve. And Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. You know, man blames woman. Woman blames man. And honestly, man blamed God. He said, the woman that which thou gavest me, whom thou gavest to be with me. You know, we're so good at blaming everybody else. An angry husband, listen, an angry husband usually blames his wife. An impatient mother usually blames her children. And a discontent employee usually blames the boss or, or, or the, the customers. A disgruntled church member is very quick to blame the pastor... A rebellious teenager is, is quick to blame his parents. But I'm just telling you something we all need to hear tonight. According to James, we have no one to blame but ourselves. No one makes us sin. No one forces us into unrighteousness. And the next time that we want to blame somebody, remember, Adam and Eve had a perfect environment and they sinned. So even if everybody around you was perfect and every circumstance in your life was perfect and nothing ever went wrong, you know what you would still do? You would still sin. It's nobody's fault but ours. Don't, don't look to blame anybody except the person in the mirror. You'd sin. If there was everything around you was perfect, you'd still sin. In verse 14, James says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. James says, Who's to blame? Look in the mirror. The source of temptation is right here. It's within me. That's my problem. Friends, my problem is me. And your problem is you. Your problem's not me. Your problem's not the person that lives with you. Your problem's not your parents. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. Your problem is the person that stares at you in the mirror every morning. That's the problem with temptation. But there's also a process... ...of temptation here. And I want to look at this a little bit more in detail. In, in verse 15, 
He says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There's a, there's a process. When, when, and so I know you know this. I know you know this, but don't check out tonight. Because sometimes it's the reason we're where we are is because we have forgotten about what the basics are. We forget this process. So pay attention. When the lust that comes from within, when it conceives, it brings forth sin and sin results in death. So in many ways, let's go back to the beginning. In, in many ways, he uses the word conceives. So the idea really is like the conception and birth of a baby. Lust conceives. And you could say that lust is the mother of sin. Lust conceives sin. And some people act as if sin in their lives is passive and they just fell into it. No one gets into sin accidentally or passively because our lust is the mother of sin. Our lust is what conceives sin. The process of temptation begins with lust. And lust is a strong, any strong desire, by the way. Lust is not just sexual sin. It's any strong desire. It could be eating. It could be laziness. It could be too much time on your phone. It could be anything that's a strong desire for you. And you say, well, my problem is not lust like we think about lust typically. But if you have lust in some other area, it's still lust. It's a strong desire. It's a strong feeling that leads you about. We're tempted when we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed. And the concept here also points to fishing. Now, my dad and my brother, and I've talked about this before um, in, you know, in therapy very often, but my dad and my brother are great fishermen. I am not good at it. I can stand between them, and they just reel in the fish, and as they do, the fish they bring in laugh at me. And, and I'm not good at it. I wish I was. I like to go, and, and yet I'm just not good. To, but to be enticed, that's like the baiting of a hook. You bait the hook, you snag the fish, you reel it in. Our, our lust loves that enticing bait. We want it. So pay attention here, okay? Lock in. The bait has to be attractive because it has to hide the hook. See, the hook is sharp. The hook is dangerous. The hook will snag you. You don't just use the hook, though. You need bait to hide the hook. You have to trick the fish into thinking it's going to eat, not be eaten. If you hunt, then you know this process is true. In hunting, you don't just go out and go into the woods and yell out your intentions to the deer. Hey, deer, I'm here. I'm going to eat you. That doesn't work. No, you have to hide yourself in a blind. And, and you, have to, you have to somehow conceal your scent. That's hard after a few days of hunting. But you've got to conceal your scent. You've got to conceal where, where you are so the deer can't see you. you. You trick the deer into thinking it's safe and that there's nobody there. It's the very same concept as fishing. And it, it, but that's the enticement. You, you put corn out in, or you put something that, that will appeal to the deer so that they'll walk in. That's the process of temptation. And listen, Satan has a big tackle box. And he knows our lusts. He knows the things in us that we want strongly. And he knows what we want. He knows how strongly we feel. And how often, and we're going to get to this thought, how often we are led about by how we feel. Our feelings lead us about and take us to certain places. And listen, Satan doesn't make us sin, but he knows how to bait a hook. He did it with Adam and Eve. 
and he's been very successful. I mean, think about Lot, um, about Lot in Sodom. In Lotum, okay? Think about Lot in Sodom. Lot didn't, when, when Lot ended up in Sodom, he didn't start in Sodom. Where, what did it say that he saw? He saw the well-watered plains of Jordan. So he looked. And then he started to lean in that direction. And then we find him living in Sodom. And then eventually he's sitting in the gates. Which means that he was a leader, a civic leader. He was a community leader. So what began as a look, it's like, wow, those are well-watered plains. And then he ended up in Sodom leading it. But you know what? You know what Sodom, you know what Lot saw? He saw well-watered plains. You know what he didn't see at the beginning? He didn't see most of his family burning up in fire and brimstone in Sodom. He didn't see his wife as a pillar of salt. He didn't see what happened in that tent later on. You know, all he saw was the well-watered plain. And it led him to a place that his lust wanted. And it led him to the consequences he never saw. And it's just, that's how Satan works. The same thing happened with David. David saw a beautiful woman. That's it. You know what David didn't see? He didn't see the birth of a child and the death of a child. He didn't see the murder of Uriah the Hittite. David didn't see, uh, he didn't see the, the judgment that would come to his own family years down the road because of his actions. And that's how it works, is our lust causes us only to see the bait. And we don't see the hook, and we don't see when we get filleted, we don't see the death that that hook leads to. That's, that's the danger of the process here of, of, the, of temptation. Is it's so appealing, it, but it hides the hook and we don't see the consequences. Our, we have a desire, we feel strongly, there comes temptation, it's appealing, we take the bait, there are consequences, and then there's death. And every one of us gullible fish, every one of us has taken the bait at times. You know, and it's interesting too because the desire is not always wrong. Many desires are God-given. It's, it's natural to eat. It's natural to, to want something to drink. If you didn't have those desires, you would die. But too much is not good for you. It's natural to have a desire. Um, a man and a wife and his wife, husband and wife, to have a physical desire for each other. But outside of marriage, it destroys everything. Eating is fine. Gluttony is not. The marriage bed is wonderful. Adultery is not. Sleeping is needed, but laziness is harmful. We sin when we step outside the normal boundaries of our natural feelings. When they lead us beyond the normal boundaries. The fire in a fireplace brings heat on a cold night. But when it gets outside of the fireplace, it destroys the whole house. Our problem is we think, well, I need or want or deserve more than I have. We get captured by our feelings. And much like the original sin of Satan, who was full of pride in heaven. And listen, Satan had a pretty good thing going in heaven. But he wanted more. He, he wanted to aspire to, to greatness. He wanted to be like the Most High. And, and when he did, it, it took him down. And we, what we have is a conflict between feelings, what we want. And truth, what is best. I'm going to say that again because that really does set the stage for the rest of this. Is what we have is a conflict between our feelings. What we want. And the truth. What is best. And the issue comes when we live over here. More than we live over here. When we live for feelings. Rather than 
what is right and what is true. And I'm telling you, your success as a Christian is dependent on how, how well you navigate your feelings over here. And not feeling like it, I'm just telling you, not feeling like it, that's not good enough. Not feeling like it, that's not good enough. I, I've come across many people in, in my life and, and you say, well, why weren't you there? Or why didn't you do it? And they say, well, I just didn't feel like it. Too many of God's people that say I'm a disciple say, I don't feel like it. So they don't. You know, that's immaturity. Because operating based on your feelings instead of what you know is right, that's what kids do. I, I mean, if my son, um, who's eight, and I don't want to embarrass him too much, but in his immaturity, very often he'll do what he feels like doing, but that doesn't mean it, he always does what's best. Because he's eight, and you know, as an eight-year-old, it's okay. We're going to train him and help him to overcome that. But, but if he's still an adult and still doing that, that's when there's a big problem. If you operate based on how you feel instead of what you know is right, then you haven't learned the lesson of maturity that James is trying to teach us. The truth about temptation. See, there are two principles at conflict, okay? This is, and the rest of the sermon is kind of built on these. So get this. The two principles at, com, at conflict are how I feel. And over here, what I know. How I feel and what I know. You see, how I feel is when I operate based on what I want. It's not about what's right. It's not about what's best. It's just what I want. But what I know is when I operate based on what is true and what is right and what is best. And listen, very often we, we have this conflict, but very often we lose out over here. And we, ba we live based on how we feel rather than what we know is best. And we live over here how I feel, but listen, that doesn't work in normal life. I mean, you don't operate how you feel when it comes to whether or not you want to go to work. Because most mornings, you would wake up and say, I don't feel like going to work. And guess what? You wouldn't have a job very long if that's how you operated. It doesn't work uh, in keeping the law. You don't get to operate how you feel when it comes to obeying traffic laws. I mean, if you get pulled over and the highway patrolman says you were going 100 in an 80 mile an hour zone on the freeway. I mean, this is South Dakota, but come on, 100 and you say, well, officer, I felt like going 100. I didn't feel like going 80. Does the officer say, oh, I'm so sorry. Now, you have a great day. And he lets you go. Well, probably not. See, that doesn't work. To operate how you feel when it comes to normal life things, it doesn't work. But here's the problem. I know a lot of Christians that live their Christian lives that way. And, and they live their life based on how I feel and not what I know. So why would I think that as a Christian I could live my life how I feel and not what I know and it would be okay? Too many self-proclaimed disciples say, I don't feel like doing right. So they don't. Too many self-proclaimed disciples say, I don't feel like being humble. And so they're not. They say, I don't feel like checking my anger. So they don't. I don't feel like biting my tongue when I want to say something. So they don't. I don't feel like being committed to, the, to this ministry of mine. And they're not. 
Listen, if we let our feelings be the master, we will lose every single time. Maturity, and this is the point I want you to get tonight. Maturity is when you allow the what I know decisions to eclipse how I feel decisions. I'm going to say that again. Maturity is when you allow what I know decisions, how I feel, no, what I know decisions, I'll go over here, to eclipse how I feel decisions. That's maturity. And listen, I'm just going to apply this in a couple of different ways. When it comes to church, that's not a how I feel decision. And for, uh, for too many, for too many people, it's a how I feel decision. You know the reason we're at maybe 60% on a Sunday night? 55% on a Wednesday night? Is because that people that should be calling themselves disciples have decided that church is a how I feel decision. And I hope you understand my spirit. I'm not trying to be hard about this. You know, but I mean, it it takes me at times. I mean, it took me a while to to come in on Sunday and Wednesday nights and, and, and still be encouraged sometimes. Because people that should be here on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, they should be here. And listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You're here. But it wouldn't take much. Listen, it wouldn't take much because I know how we are and I know how I am. It wouldn't take me much to convince myself to adjust my thinking about something like church. And say, well, you know, it's always for me. It's always been a what I know decision. But, you know, this one time, I'm going to make it a how I feel decision. And you do that one time, and guess what's easier the next time? It's a lot easier to put it back over into this category. And we lose every time. If we operate based on how we feel, it doesn't lead to anything productive or anything helpful. No, if we put church in a how I feel decision, I can tell you what will happen. It won't be long, and how you feel will win every time. Our maturity in Christ depends on us saying this is a what I know decision. Our maturity, our, our, our the, the good of our families, it depends on us saying church is a what I know decision. We're commanded to be in church. Now, do we always feel like it? No. Oh, that hurts my feelings. Come on. You know what? I woke up this morning. I, I wouldn't say that this morning I thought, I'm so excited about church. I feel like being in church today. It took me a minute to warm up. And, and so I'm just letting your, your, your pastors being transparent with you tonight. It's not always a how I feel. I don't always feel good about going to church. And, but you know what? You know what saves me and saves my family? is a long time ago. 20 years ago when we got married. Church became a what I know decision, not a how I feel decision. And so every single time... It's a church day. We don't even have to talk about it. Because how I feel has no bearing on what I know. I know that church is needed and necessary and it's helpful for my family and my kids' spiritual future. Um, is, is their, their spiritual future is directly connected with their faithfulness to a local church. 
And I, I need them to be here. I want them to be here. And I may not always feel like it, but I've got to take it out of this category and put it over here and say, no, this one wins every time. And you can apply this to anything the Bible talks about. I mean, telling other people about Jesus, that's not a how I feel decision. Because God doesn't, Jesus doesn't give us, give us the option to opt out of that. It's a what I know decision. What I know is that Jesus commanded it. He gave it to a local church who passed it on to all these local churches ever since. So therefore it's a responsibility of Eastside Baptist Church now. And as a disciple and member of Eastside, I have a responsibility to tell people about Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, if I allowed my, my decision to witness to people to be based on how I feel about it, I can tell you there'd be plenty of times that I would say, well, I don't really feel like doing that today. When I go to the store and go walk up to the counter and there's somebody there that's a soul that needs Jesus. You know, how I feel is not normally like, I feel like being bold about Jesus right now. No, but if I'm going to operate the way I'm supposed to, I have to make this a what I know decision. And what I know is that person needs Jesus. And there may not be anybody else that tells them. And I have a commandment. I have a commission on my life. Not as the pastor, but as a member of Eastside Baptist Church. I have a commission on my life to tell them about Jesus Christ and be responsible for that. It's not a how I feel decision. The Christian life, listen, it's made up of countless what I know decisions that need to eclipse the how I feel decisions. Purity. Young person, purity is a what I know decision. I mean, you're going to be tempted and you're going to think, well, this is what everybody's doing. And in our culture, I mean, tell any parents in our culture, purity is a how I feel for everybody else, but not for a disciple, that, a young person that's a disciple of Christ. It's a what I know. And what I know is that Jesus Christ tells me to wait till I get married. So I'm not going to put anything in front of my eyes and I'm not going to do anything that, that puts that at risk. Purity is a what I know, not how I feel. Faithfulness to your spouse. Boy, you're like, man, Pastor, you're really hitting the hard ones tonight. Well, I mean, we need to hear this. Too many marriages have been torn apart because the spouse, one or the other, decided that their, their commitment to their marriage was a how I feel decision, not a what I know decision. And it, and it, and it tore apart a family. Serving in your church, that's a what I know, not how I feel. Every person in the body has a place. Love works, friends. That's a, that's a what I know, not how I feel. As a disciple, our love should be evident in how we live. We, we have far too many professing disciples living how they feel instead of what they know. And I don't just mean at Eastside, I mean Christendom. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Why does it really matter all that much? Well, look at verse 15. Because when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. That's why it matters. Because the child of lust is sin, but the grandchild of lust is death. And operating how we feel, our natural desires, our lusts, if we let those lead us, the end of those is death. And now listen, this isn't talking just about eternal death, because James is writing to believers here. 
So obviously, then, this is death to other things. But if we're in the habit, listen, of submitting to our natural feelings, it's going to kill our spiritual lives. Sin and God, remember, there's no common ground. And so if you are a child of God, but you're engaged in sin before God, then you can't have a relationship with God. If you're a how I feel Christian, instead of a what I know Christian, you are killing your spiritual life. If you have a habit of, listen, if you have a habit of responding to other people with how I feel instead of what I know. And listen, this is a problem. We all have to deal with this. But if you're the kind of person that responds to other people based on how I feel, not based on what I know. You know what you're going to kill? You're going to kill your testimony. And you're going to kill your relationships with other people. The death of a marriage comes when a husband and wife live how I feel instead of what I know. The death of a teenager's spiritual life comes when he decides to only submit to his parents when he feels like it, not based on what he knows to be right. Uh, The death of a church happens when its members live how I feel instead of what I know. The death of a nation takes place when it decides to stop living what I know and start living how I feel. And that's happened in our country years ago. When we discarded what we knew to be right and the foundational principles of our country, which were scriptural truths, I don't care what anybody says, those those foundational principles were what we know. And when we at some point along the way discarded those and started living based on what I feel like or how I feel... That was the beginning of the death of the United States of America. And we're headed down a slippery path. And before too long, boy, we won't even be a... We won't resemble at all what we used to be. Tell yourself this. How I feel will kill my marriage. How I feel will create bitterness in my children. If I treat them how I feel... How I feel will kill my testimony with my co-workers. How I feel will destroy our church. How I feel will be the death of my spiritual life. So I'm going to live what I know, not how I feel. Here's what we know about temptation. I'm the problem. No one else is to blame. But second, if I operate based on how I feel, it's going to kill my spiritual life. So knowing those things, I choose to live for God based on what I know, not how I feel. And listen, if you are waiting until you feel right about it to live for God, you may never get there. Sometimes you have to live for the Lord based on what I know in spite of how you feel. And the longer you live what I know... Someday, one day, you'll wake up and realize, you know what? I kind of feel like serving God now. The longer you obey over here, the more it's like a magnet. You know, you got a giant magnet over here and you're living what I know. And I'm living what I know. And I'm living based on truth. And I'm living what is right. I'm living what is best. And I don't always feel like it. I may never feel like it. But I'm just going to do it because it's the right thing. And suddenly, we'll wake up one time and how you feel has kind of slowly been creeping over and creeping over 
And eventually you might even get to the place where what you know and how you feel are kind of one and the same. Now, is it always going to be that way? No. But I'm telling you, the longer you obey, the more your feelings come in line with what is right. The Bible says, says something about obeying, and then you understand. And I really believe that's a problem in our, in our culture of Christianity, is we're waiting until we feel right about it before we do it. But that's not the way that James says is a way to live a successful Christian life. Next time we're going to look at a bigger principle of what I know that I think is really going to help us even more. But for tonight, let me ask you some closing questions. I shouldn't have said closing. Okay, don't close your Bible. Is there an area in your life in which you're living off how you feel? Your walk with God? Listen, if my walk with God was dependent on how I feel, I may never read my Bible in the mornings. I mean, it's hard to wake up sometimes. It's hard to clear your head it's hard to really just be excited, but sometimes you just have to get up and do it. Uh, are you, how about your church attendance? How about your relationship with somebody? Are you operating how you feel based on, or more, or, or what you know? How about your testimony at work? How about your involvement in the Great Commission? How, how you deal with somebody at church, a relationship? Is it how you feel or what you know? Your submission to some authority in your life, young people, is it how you feel or what you know? Because the only end of that life philosophy, according to James, is it's going to kill something. It'll kill your spiritual life. The second question, is, is, is it time to submit one of those areas to what you know? What is best? What's right? What's helpful? What's appropriate? Because that ends in life, not death. And then the third question is, maybe your issue is you've been blaming everybody else for your choices. You're, you're really good at passing the buck. See, but the problem tonight, friend, the problem's not out there, the problem's in here. The problem is in the mirror, is that you're living off how you feel when it comes to blaming everybody, and that only leads to the death of your spiritual life. If you want a vibrant, real walk with God, it's time to take responsibility for your own sin. So tonight, examine yourself. Is my life lived based on how I feel or what I know? If I'm over here in spite of how I feel, I'll be safe. But if I'm over here living how I feel, the only end of that, it's going to kill something. Lust conceives and brings forth sin. And the end of sin is always death. So is there an area in your life where you need to make a transfer? To come from over here to over here. That's what James says needs to happen if we want spiritual life. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And I don't know what area that you may have been struggling in or what area you need to do business with the Lord in. But tonight I say, I know this is, it seems so simple, but it is so important. I'm telling you, this is vitally important to your spiritual life. And we must understand the problem is me. And the process is that if I'm not careful, I'll operate based on how I feel instead of what I know. And it will end up killing something. So I'm encouraging you tonight. Let's do business with the Lord. If there's some area in your life that you've been blaming everybody else 
or you've been living based on how you feel instead of what you know. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And the practical nature, Lord, should not preclude us from response. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to acknowledge an area in our lives where we have not been living based on, on what we know. God, help us not to, even in a sermon like this, not to give in to the temptation of only responding to how we feel. Because we should respond to truth, what we know. So God, tonight, just help us to examine ourselves in the mirror. Help us to stop blaming ourselves or blaming other people for our actions. But help us to come to an understanding that we're the problem. And then second, if we live in an air, in, in the what I know, I'm sorry, how I feel instead of what I know, it's going to kill our spiritual lives. It'll, it'll kill our marriage. It'll kill a relationship. The end of those is always death. So God, just help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you and willing to submit ourselves to this truth this evening. As, as we close, Lord, just help us to be transparent and willing to be self-examining. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.